You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. Well, in short, the gospel demands discipleship. I mean, when you really understand what Christ has done for you, there will be a growing burden inside your heart to surrender yourself to him as his true disciple. And here in John chapter 8, we have a wonderful opportunity to discover what it means, according to Christ, to be one of his disciples. Uh, Last time we studied here in John, we left off in verse 30, where it says that as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And uh, Jesus had been teaching them that he was the light of the world and that all that came to him would not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Uh, He had released the woman who had been caught in adultery from her sin. He did not condemn her, but told her to go and sin no more. And uh, so as Jesus is saying all of these things here, sort of the culmination of the Feast of Tabernacles and all of the words that Jesus was presenting is that many people began to believe in him. However, their belief was rather fickle and rather shallow. And so Jesus here at the end of John chapter 8 is going to explain what real discipleship looks like. And as we move through this text, I'll try to uh, share with you a few different principles and teachings from Christ that demonstrate what a disciple is all about. Starting in verse 31, where Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So Jesus speaks to these Jews and really the first thing that he points out to them is he says, listen, if if you really are going to be my disciples, If you're really truly going to follow me, if you're really going to be someone who learns from me and receives from me, the first sort of order of business is that you're going to need to be a person who abides in my word. Now, the word abide is a wonderful word. It's a very biblical word. I can't say that I've really ever used the word abide outside of Christian terminology or Bible teaching. But it's a word that simply means to continue in, to be connected to and continue in. Uh, We use it often concerning our relationship and fellowship with Christ himself. As he says in John chapter 15, as we, as the branches, abide in the vine Christ, we receive life from him, uh, the, you know, vitality of him, And it produces wonderful fruit inside of our lives as we abide in him. But even in that John 15 passage, Jesus said in verse 7, he said, If you abide in me and my words abide in you. And so uh, Jesus is saying here to these people, If you want to be my disciple, my words must abide in you and you must abide in my word. There is a continuing connected relationship with the word of God that is required for anyone who longs to be his disciple. Now at its basest sense or tense, uh, this is just simply obedience, right? If you want to be my disciple, then when I teach you and instruct you and share with you on how to live life, you will listen to the things that I say and you will follow the dictates of my teaching. 
James said in James 1 verse 25 that there is one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, and he will be blessed in his doing. And so there are those who, they hear the word, they do the word. They're not hearers only, but doers also. And so at its purest sense, that's what Jesus is saying. There's obedience to my word that is required. However, I love the truth and the reality that the word of God, here according to Jesus, has something to do with our freedom. Notice what he says. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In other words, there's a connection and a relationship between our abiding and connectivity to the word of God, the word of Christ, and the freedom that we experience. It's a simple process. You abide in the word. You then know the truth, Jesus says. It tells us in the Old Testament that there will be moments where you hear it in your ears from behind you. It's just the, the voice of God whispering into your ears. And so you'll, you'll abide, number one. You'll know the truth, number two. And thirdly, and finally, the result is that you will be set free. Now, this is wonderful, the freedom that Christ offers. And so there's a connection between our relationship with God's word and our freedom. You know, I've found this quite often in my own life. It's been very rare that I've talked to someone who is perhaps stuck in some kind of slavery to sin. They're struggling to find victory. And, uh, you know, from time to time, I'll ask simple questions like, how's your prayer life? Uh, do you believe the gospel? What is the gospel? Do you read the Bible? How much? When? Uh, what is your fellowship life like? You know, I'll ask these basic, gauging the temperature kinds of questions to see where someone is at. And I have to tell you, it's very, very rare to find someone who is constant in the Word of God, reading it, attempting to obey it, they're into it, uh, who is also, at the same time, struggling with some major life-dominating sin that is completely bound them. It, it can happen, uh, but it is more rare uh, than we might think. And so Jesus is telling us, he says, listen, there is freedom that is connected to your relationship with the word of God. Believing it, trusting it, following it, being the good soil, Jesus is saying. He said similar things before his parable of the sower. He talks about the four types of soil. One kind of human heart hears the word and Satan immediately scoops it up like the birds of the air eating the seed that's been scattered on the path. Uh, then there are those who there's hardness in their hearts. There's no room for the seed of God's word to grow. And then there are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it immediately with joy. But there's competition inside their hearts. There are thorns and thistles. These are the desires for riches and cares for the things of the world. And then there are those whose hearts are pure and ready to receive and they bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. It absolutely changes their lives. And so Jesus is saying to this crowd, he's saying, listen, there's proof that you're my disciple. And number one, it's that you abide in the word of God, abide in my word. So they answered him because he said the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. 
How is it that you say we will become free? Now, this is wild that they're making this statement. Uh, For one, they're saying, we're Abraham's kids. We've never been enslaved by anyone. When Abraham received his promise from God that God would make a nation from him that the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore could not compare with, when God made that promise to Abraham, the next thing out of God's mouth was, but your ancestors will be carried away captive for a period of over 400 years into the land of Egypt, obviously. And so, you know, they were enslaved from the very beginning, enslaved in Egypt, enslaved in Babylon. Even now, as they say this, they are enslaved really in one sense under the Roman hand and government. And so it's wild that they say this, but they say, we've never been enslaved. How do you say you, you will become free? And Jesus answered them, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So the slavery Jesus speaks of is not physical slavery, but a spiritual slavery. And a slavery to sin itself. You know, sin is the problem. Sin is the issue. Sin is the thing that binds a person. You know, the worst kind of slavery is a slavery to self and the demands of self, and a shameful self-centeredness. And so Jesus says, listen, if you commit sin, you're practicing it, you are a slave to sin. The slave, verse 35, does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He says here, listen, you know, think about a house. And in a house... If there's a slave, the slave really doesn't have a strong future. He's got nothing that he can bank on or count on or an inheritance that he can rest in. But the son, he remains in that house forever. And so Jesus says, if the son, speaking of himself, obviously, he's been talking quite often in the recent chapters about his relationship with his father. He says, if the son sets you free you will be free indeed. And this is another part of being a disciple of Christ. It's a person who receives the freedom that is theirs in Christ Jesus. Uh, In Romans 8, we discover the freedom that we have. We are free from the law of sin and death. We've been set free by the law of the Spirit. We've been set free by the gospel, the cross of Christ. We've been set free so that we can be new and redeemed people who are able to fulfill the law of righteousness in one sense. Our lives are different. We couldn't obey God from our hearts previously, but we've been set free from ourselves. And so now we have an ability in our mind and in our hearts to obey the word of God, the law of God. And so he expresses to them, he says, listen, enjoy this freedom that whom the son sets free is free indeed. And so this is a great point about being a disciple. These are disciples are people who have been set free. And truly, freedom does follow obedience to the word of God. When you read the law in the Old Testament, you discover that God told the people, listen here, Walk with me, obey me, enjoy a relationship with me, listen to my word, obey my word. And if you disobey my word and you begin to marry the women and the pagan nations around you and worship their false gods and make peace treaties with these nations, if you begin to compromise in that kind of way, what you need to understand is 
Eventually, slavery is coming. A simple cursory reading of the book of Judges reveals a period of over 400 years where the people of Israel went through these cycles of sin where they found themselves enslaved time and time again. And so disobedience to the word brings slavery, but obedience to Christ and his word, true discipleship, lends itself to wonderful freedom. And so Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know, verse 37, that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And so he says, listen, I know that you're offspring of Abraham, but on the other hand, I'm only doing what my father has told me to do, and you are only doing what your father has told you to do. He doesn't call them children of Abraham in the sense that Abraham is their father. He calls them offspring of Abraham, and then identifies a different character who is their father. They answered him, verse 39, and said, Abraham is our father. You know, what are you talking about? Abraham is our father. We don't know who you're alluding to. But Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Now in this little phrase, I mean, Jesus is saying, you know, no, you're not acting like Abraham's children. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works that Abraham did. And in this little phrase, you know, because he goes on and says, you're not, you didn't receive me, you're trying to kill me. Uh, you're doing the works your father did. Not Abraham, but your father. So just thinking about this, we think about what did Abraham do? Because I think in this, we see another point on what it really means to be a disciple of Christ. Abraham received the promises of God. He trusted in the promises of God. When the men showed up at the tents of Mamre, he received those men. He rejoiced over those men. When he saw Melchizedek, he tithed. He was a, a man who rejoiced at the moments that he was able to interact with God. And when God would speak into his heart a promise and declare a truth to him, he would believe it. He would trust it implicitly, completely. And here, these people are hearing truths from Christ, and really in their hearts, there's not a full belief concerning the things that Jesus had said. And so I think in another way, in a fresh way, what we see here from Jesus is that, you know, a true disciple is going to trust God like Abraham trusted God. You know, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we walk by faith and not by sight. You know, you think about Abraham and his life. Abraham was a man who really did trust in the Lord. You know, he had lapses of his faith, to be sure, moments when fear invaded his heart, when he thought he needed to take matters into his own hands to defend himself, protect himself, provide for himself, or give himself an ancestor, a descendant, a son. However, for the most part, Abraham was a man who was really radical in faith, saving faith to be sure. He believed God, it says, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, the father of saving type of faith. But beyond that, 
Abraham also trusted in the Lord just with a very practical, everyday kind of faith. You remember when his son Isaac was grown, God spoke to Abraham and said, Take your son Isaac, your only son, whom you love, to Mount Moriah and offer him there as a sacrifice. Abraham trusted the Lord. He took this bold step and move and took his son Isaac off to this mountaintop in order to sacrifice his son. Now, it appears gruesome to us, but looking back on it, it appears God was trying to communicate two major things. Number one, Abraham lived amongst pagans who had gods who would actually require child sacrifices. So when God stopped Abraham from going through with this sacrifice, it's as if God was saying, Listen, I'm not like all of these other gods. But number two, the gruesome sort of feeling that we have over it, the sick feeling we get in our stomach over that idea, it's as if God is also saying, yes, this is grotesque, but I am willing to do it myself. I will send my son to die for you. But God was testing the faith of Abraham, the trust of Abraham. And it tells us in Hebrews Chapter 11, this incredible thing, it tells us that Abraham actually believed so much in the promises of God because God had, by that point, affirmed that through Isaac, the world would be blessed. And Isaac had had no children up until that point. And so Abraham, in his heart, believed that God would have to raise Isaac from the dead. That is incredible faith and incredible trust. And I think sometimes we need to take a step back and say, Lord, are you asking me in this moment to walk by faith or to walk by sight? And I think the Lord's answer is, listen, we are a people. You are a people now who walk by faith and not by sight, not by your feelings and perceptions. But you trust me, you lean upon me, and you follow me, even at times where it might be a little wild, a little crazy in your life. And so they said to Jesus in response, back in John 8, they said, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. I think this is a little bit of a dig against Jesus. I think rumors had begun to swirl that uh, he had been born before his parents had fully gotten married. And so uh, rumors swelling that Jesus had been born out of wedlock in sexual immorality, which of course in that culture especially was very frowned upon. And Jesus did not defend himself with that, but said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So he says to them, Listen, if you were really my disciples, and if you were really of God, if God were your father, you would love me. And I think I think this is one of the sort of key traits of what a disciple really is. They love Christ. They love Christ. A lot of times we talk about discipleship and sometimes we'll say to someone, hey, would you disciple me? And usually what we mean by that is, you know, would you talk to me about finances? Would you check in on my moral integrity? Would you hold my feet to the fire? Would you teach me about Christian disciplines? And these are wonderful things. However, what Jesus is saying is a disciple would love Christ. A disciple would be all about Jesus. And, and, and I've found that a love for the gospel, a love for what Christ has done for us, a love for Christ, i found that this is the greatest and the best and the, the most lasting, the strongest engine 
to propel a person towards obedience in the Lord and uh, health in their spiritual life. It leads this person to great vitality. If you, if your motivation for you know being in fellowship in the in a church or or wanting to walk with God, if your motivation is merely to clean up your life, to have a different kind of life, then that motivation only goes so far. But when your motivation for the things that you do is the love of Christ, when you can say with Paul that the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. If you can say that kind of thing and you say the love of Christ is controlling me, propelling me, moving me, then you have got the centerpiece inside of your heart that will enable you to really live as a disciple of Christ. And so I, I encourage you to open your heart to God and allow the love of Christ to really flood your life and your heart because that is the motivation that when you're all alone by yourself at night and temptation hits, that love of Christ, sometimes that's all you've got to stand strong and to walk with the Lord. And that's what a real disciple is. They love Christ. And so Jesus goes on. He says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so he tells them who their father really is. And, and Jesus is very blunt. And he tells them that their father is the devil himself, a murderer from the beginning, Jesus said. Now, when Satan came rolling up into the Garden of Eden, he did not really technically murder Eve. But... She was tempted to sin, and that temptation to sin put her in a state where she was now going to die. It was a slow process, but death came upon the world as a result of that sin. And so, in another sense, Satan definitely is a murderer. And, and it would be so good for us if we could just see that with, with temptation. If we could just look behind what temptation is. And if we could see the murder and the death that follows temptation, oh, how it would help us. But Jesus says to them, you're following this murderer, the father of lies. He says, verse 45, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. This is a sad state when a person cannot believe the truth. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And so powerful statements from Jesus. He really lays it on them and he says, listen, you can't hear me because you are not of God. So the Jews answered him, verse 48. I mean, he's telling them the truth. They should have inspected their hearts. There should have been repentance and a coming back to God. There should have been a real realization that they were prideful inside of their hearts. But instead they answer him and say, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So they resort to name calling. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. I'm not acting like a demon possessed man. I'm seeking the glory of, of others and the glory of God. 
And uh, I'm not seeking glory for myself. Truly, truly, verse 51, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He reiterates, you've got to follow my word. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets, they died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. Now this was a major rebuke to these Jews. The pride in their hearts was that they had known God. He says, But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So Jesus lays this out before them. He says, listen, you have not known God. If you had known God, uh, you would rejoice about me, just like Abraham did when he saw my day. So the Jews said to him, verse 57, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? All right, they say, listen, you're not even 50 yet. He wasn't even really close to 50. He was probably in his mid-30s at this point. They say, you're not even 50 yet, and, and, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus made this powerful statement and wonderful claim when he said to them, Truly, truly, verse 58, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. These are two wonderful claims coming from Jesus that both point to the deity of Christ. Number one, he tells these people, I was around at the time of Abraham. I have always been, and I was existent at Abraham's time. And uh, this is a teaching of the New Testament, that Jesus is before all things, as Colossians 1.17 says. In John 17, Jesus would pray, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So he's Speaking of his pre-existence. But number two, he is claiming a title from God. A title of God, of deity. When he calls himself the I am. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says before Abraham was, I am. This is the title that God gave to Moses when Moses asked, Who shall I say has sent me? God said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me. To you. This is the title of God himself, and Jesus adopts it for himself. A wonderful title, to be sure, because with that title, you can fill in the blank. Jesus would say, I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the door to the sheep. I am uh, the way, the truth, and the life. These wonderful I ams. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, seeking to kill him, because of what they perceived as blasphemy. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. May you be a true disciple, one who abides in the word of God, experiences the freedom of God, trusts God with all of your heart, and loves Christ. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.